Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. The voting is over, and it's been a long week of counting ballots. Today we'll discuss what we learned and what it means for Arizona's political future. As of this taping, results are still being counted in Arizona and across the nation. But as of Thursday afternoon, Democrat Joe Biden maintained a lead over President Donald Trump in Arizona. It looks like Arizona voters have approved recreational marijuana use for adults and elected a second Democrat to the U.S. Senate, Mark Kelly. Arizona voters cast ballots in record numbers in this election. While Republicans remain the dominant party by registration, for the first time in a decade, Democrats have the second highest number of registered voters, followed by those with no party affiliation. But not everyone voted according to their party registration. Mike Noble, who's spent years conducting polls with Phoenix-based OH Predictive Insights, says that's not surprising. Arizona is not a uh, was traditionally classified as a Republican state. I would say it's definitely an independent state. So running hard left, running hard right on the state, it's either center, center right, center left, because Arizona is, uh, again, uh, prefer a bit more of a moderate when it comes to statewide office. We saw that trend in 2018 when Kirsten Sinema, a Democrat who tried to stay near the political center, beat Martha McSally, who embraced the far right and President Trump. In the same year, Arizona voters re-elected Republican Governor Doug Ducey. If you look at a map of votes and registration for that year, Sinema won Maricopa County with 50% of the vote, but only 30% of the county was registered as Democrats. In this 2020 election, Joe Biden has led the presidential race in Maricopa County for much of the week, as has Mark Kelly, even though the county has more registered Republicans than Democrats. Noble says Arizona's change from a Republican stronghold to a battleground state has been coming for a while. It's really that suburban shift because Arizonans, you know, there's a very big group that, again, they're very independent. We're the home of Barry Goldwater, uh, John McCain. And again, with this very polarized base strategy, especially uh, Trump employed, it really pushed independents uh, that used to lean center right, moved them left, but actually pretty far left. And that's really the issue of, of why we're seeing the results that we are. In the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were nearly tied in Yuma County, even though Democrats led Republicans by six percentage points in registration. This year, Trump led Yuma County despite a nearly equal number of Republicans and Democrats. But in both cases, unaffiliated voters in Yuma County account for nearly a third of registered voters. To get a better look at registration and voting by county between 2016 and 2020, check out the map on our website. As we've said, this was largely a good year for Democrats in Arizona and that held true on the local level in Pima County, where nearly all the countywide races went to Democrats. If current results stand, Democrats will hold four of the five seats on the Pima County Board of Supervisors, as well as holding the office of recorder and assessor. As of this taping, the races for sheriff and treasurer are still very tight, but show Democrats in the lead. Dylan Smith, a longtime local journalist and editor and publisher of the Tucson Sentinel, says while Pima County has been a Democratic stronghold for a while, Republicans typically win some races. 
Certainly, this was not a good year to be a Republican in Pima County, and that was, you know, uh, signaled pretty strongly months ago. But for just about every office to be held by Democrats is, uh, I think, you know, a, a pretty big deal. We'll see how one-party rule works out in Pima County. One of the other very interesting things about the, the election results are just about every office is going to be held by a newcomer. We've got the, if the sheriff's race holds up, we'll have the return of a former sheriff, uh, you know, uh, coming back after uh, being ousted for one term. And then a whole lot of folks who are not always new to politics, but new to the offices we'll be in, including a majority of the Board of Supervisors, will have three brand new supervisors. So that's going to be uh, a, a pretty big learning curve, not just for them individually, but uh, collectively. Let's start with the, the Board of Supervisors. As you said, three new faces. One of them may be um, Democrat Rex Scott, who's going to replace retiring Republican Allie Miller in what has usually been a Republican district, that first district that includes the foothills. Is this just a reflection of 2020 or is something changing in the foothills? Well, in that district, which is a, a big chunk of the foothills and uh, a lot of the, the, the northwest side or Boro Valley, Marana area, we've seen what used to be a very distinct uh, voter registration advantage for the Republicans uh, close up. And what used to be, you know, a 10 or 15,000 uh, voter difference was only a couple thousand voters. And then there are a whole lot of independents uh, who are registered voters, but not with either party. If I recollect in 2018, that district uh, in the U.S. Senate race went blue. So this isn't something entirely out of the ordinary. Uh, at the supervisor level, it's certainly something different. It's been... Uh, I think since the early 1970s that a Democrat has represented that area on the Pima County Board of Supervisors. And then another thing that's been a good long while over on the other side of town, the other, what we consider a Republican district in district four, we've got uh, Steve Christie looking like he's going to hang on, but had a very, very strong challenge for Democrat Steve Diamond in a race where Democrats have not even bothered to run for office in decades. I was going to bring that race up. Uh, it's possible that Steve Christie becomes the lone Republican on the board of supervisors. It certainly changes the dynamic to have such a uh, you know strong Democratic control of the board of supervisors. I think uh, we will see plenty of issues where the Democrats who are going to be seated will disagree. And, you know, they're, they're not exactly a united front on absolutely everything. And I, I think we see that. Uh, we have seen that on the Board of Supervisors. We see that among the Democrats who, you know, occupy the city council right now. We should note that we're chatting on Wednesday afternoon. There's still plenty of counting. So that District 1 seat, that District 4 seat, it could change again. Talking about this new board, as you said, uh, we're going to get some new faces regardless of how all of these races come out. We know, for example, Matt Hines uh, will be a new face. We know Adelita Grijalva will be a new face. They've both been involved in varying levels of government, but not the county board. Uh, you said there's going to be a steep learning curve for all of them, uh, including those two. Uh, you know, this is um, unlike... Uh 
the jobs that they've held before, uh, you know, in uh, TOSD and in the legislature, it is a uh, full-time elected post. You know, it's a full-time job. Uh, we pay these uh, county supervisors uh, much better than the, the gigs they've held before. And uh, they're expected to uh, handle a lot of the details in what is a, you know, a, a very amazingly complex governmental system. The Pima County handles a whole lot of stuff for people. We're talking with Dylan Smith. He's the editor and publisher of the Tucson Sentinel. You mentioned the sheriff's race uh, as we speak right now. Uh, Chris Nanos, the Democrat, the former sheriff, is ahead. He's been ahead pretty much since the beginning of ballot counting. Republican incumbent Mark Napier, I think a lot of people thought he was going to win. So was that one of our, our little surprises on election night? I can't say it's a complete surprise. You know, certainly this was a big election for Democrats in Pima County, and it was going to be unlikely for a Republican to win. If any one of them were going to, other than Steve Christie, you would have thought it would have been Mark Napier. He did uh, get some support uh, from some local Democrats who were publicly, uh, you know, endorsing him in, in a way that, uh, you know, really got them some flack for crossing party lines in doing so. But on the, on the flip side of that, uh, you know, uh, Sheriff Napier went to the White House quite a few times, you know, got himself, uh, you know, pretty closely associated with the Trump administration in a lot of ways, even though he didn't exactly agree with every Trump policy. Democrats were, you know, able to uh, tag him with that association. And that was not something that in Pima County played well this year at all. If Chris Nanos maintains his lead and once again becomes the sheriff, for the average resident of Pima County, what, if any, major differences will they see in a Nanos sheriff versus a Napier sheriff? I think um, some of the changes that have already been happening in, in the sheriff's department will most likely continue, and some of them maybe even a little bit more quickly. Uh, sheriff Napier has instituted... Uh, a number of shifts in policy that you might not expect from someone who, if you just glance at him, you would think he was a conservative Republican. You know, some uh, some work going on at the jail, uh, use of force policies that are uh, more stringent and require more review. And I think we'll see uh, you know, plenty of those things continue along. Democrat Chris Nanos has said he's not going to be requesting any more uh, Stone Garden funds from the federal government to work closely with Border Patrol and other uh, immigration agencies. And that'll be sort of a, a controversial issue that won't, you know, spark the same level of uh, fervor that we've seen, uh, you know, over the past several years under Mark Napier. Moving over to the uh, Pima County recorders race. Uh, it looks like uh, Gabriela Casares Kelly is going to win that race. She declared victory. What can we expect? I mean, FN Rodriguez has held that office for decades. Again, what do you see as big changes coming um, with a new county recorder? Well, uh, Casares Kelly has really been vocal about her plans to expand uh, voter registration into places that uh, have. Uh, she says, been ignored. Uh, you know, she is uh, actually our first Native American elected countywide in Pima County. That's kind of a, a, a big deal for folks and sends a strong signal. 
and she wants to get out more into rural areas, get out on the reservation and make sure that people have more opportunities to participate. Of course, voter registration is only a small fraction of what the county recorder's job actually consists of. A whole lot of it is much more mundane handling of, of, of paperwork and making sure that it's filed away properly. But what actually impacts people, you know, that their interaction with the county recorder's office is them being registered to vote. In addition to Casares Kelly is a new face, um, the new names and faces on the Board of Supervisors, Laura Conover, who I will now spend a number of years pointing out is not related to me, uh, is coming in as the new county attorney. Are we going to see a shift overall in where the county is heading or kind of a thought process, if you will, in county government? I, th- I think so. We've got uh, you know some folks who are... Uh, Replacing Democrats, uh, you know, Conover uh, is uh, replacing uh, Lawal, who didn't run, Cazares Kelly's re- replacing uh, Rodriguez, who didn't run again, but uh, in a much more progressive way. And I think we will see, uh, you know, choices made about who to prosecute and, you know, w- what sort of, uh, especially what sort of plea bargains to uh, deal with in a lot of local criminal cases, because we have somebody who's uh, very different being our top prosecutor. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Anytime. That was Dylan Smith, editor and publisher of the Tucson Sentinel. It's been quite a year for political campaigns as 2020 has been a year unlike any other. Kate Kensky teaches political communication and public opinion at the University of Arizona. We asked her first how the pandemic affected the campaign season this year. There are a number of ways that the pandemic changed the election. Uh, One is the way in which candidates were able to do outreach. Uh, In Arizona, for example, Donald Trump, uh, you know, who, you know, at one level encouraged masks, but on the other hand, uh, you know, held large gatherings and didn't always wear a mask himself, you know, was able to come out to Arizona seven times. So I would say for his campaign, in a sense, um, you know, feeling like they could take on uh, the virus without having to worry about the social distancing or the masks, um, let him kind of continue on per usual. On the Biden side, however, because Biden's position was people needed to be social distancing and wearing masks, that really changed um, how the the you know so-called ground game worked. So they you know did come out, I think, twice. Um, but when they came out, uh, the, you know, the rallies were, were not the same. Um, you don't get the same visual appeal of having 2,000 of your closest friends, you know, gather around you cheering. Um, the the uh, cars were, were spaced out. And so visually, that looked tremendously different. And again, given his public policy position, you know, that also makes sense. He couldn't operate as he had done before. And so that meant a greater reliance on things like, you know, campaign advertising and social media outreach. But at some level, you know, to really generate enthusiasm among your supporters, um, that face-to-face time uh, does does make a difference and it generates enthusiasm. Um, A related item to that is we know from the research that every time a candidate visits a state, they get a lot of free media coverage. And so that is something that an advantage that the Biden campaign didn't get uh, because of the pandemic. 
you mentioned enthusiasm. Uh, for this year, was there enthusiasm for candidates or was it more fear of the other guy? My opponent, you know, will will ruin the country. I think it's uh, more mixed than I would have had anticipated. It was mixed to the extent that I think in some ways people felt both. I mean, they felt enthusiasm about potentially making a change or enthusiasm towards, um, you know, not having the other side, you know, you take over in some way. Uh, you know, on the one hand, I think that we saw a lot of enthusiasm in Trump supporters, you know, doing things like in the Pima County area, a lot of car, uh, you know, parades. And I think that you don't, you know, physically go out unless you really have some enthusiasm for your side. So it wasn't just I'm going to hold my nose and, you know, vote, vote for this side. I think there was some genuine enthusiasm there. By the same token, we saw early on when the ballot, uh, you know, the balloting stations opened up, a lot of Democrats coming out, coming out early. And on the one hand, I you know, have no doubt that that was a reaction to not wanting Trump. But again, I don't think that you physically go out and do these things unless you have you know, some amount of enthusiasm for the candidate you support. So I would say that, yes, no question that each side disliked the other side immensely. The data show that. But on the same time, at the same time, I think that both candidates also managed to generate some genuine enthusiasm among their supporters. No matter who wins, when the, the counting finishes, we know the presidential race, the margin will be thin. There's no landslide this year. Does that say anything about the candidates or does that say more about where the country is? I think it says where the, where the country is. We've known that we've become increasingly polarized. Uh, this is, you know, been going on for, you know, well over a decade where we have a really hard time um, acknowledging uh, the claims that the other side makes. We don't want to grant them anything. If they take one position, um, you know, our media reaction is to assume that the opposite must be the better position. And so I think that essentially is a function of the times. It's, it's highly polarized. Now, that said, I think because times have changed, candidates know that. And I would say particularly for Donald Trump, you know, there's, there's an, a sense in which, um, you know, he understands that that is, is the world. And so he has to really generate that enthusiasm for himself, but also, you know, keeping that distance. And, and I would, you know, also just mention that you know, we are living in a world in which a lot of people benefit from our divide, you know, on, on multiple levels. And it's, you know, it, it, it makes an interesting story to tell. It keeps things dynamic. It keeps them interesting. There's always tension. There's drama. And I think that we can look to a number of, of both people and organizations. The parties, in some sense, you know, benefit from having um, the, you know, the character on the other side that's perpetually perceived as evil. I think in terms of our media storytelling, that makes for a compelling story. And there's other organizations that benefit um, from the conflict. We're talking with Kate Kensky, a professor of political communication at the University of Arizona. One of the hallmarks of the campaigning and messaging of Donald Trump is the nicknames and the name calling. 
And while a lot of people think that's new, it really isn't. I know in the 1950 U.S. Senate race in Florida between George Smathers and Claude Pepper, Smathers was quoted in Time magazine as saying, quote, Are you aware that Claude Pepper is known all over Washington as a shameless extrovert? Not only that, but this man is reliably reported to practice nepotism with his sister-in-law, and his sister has been a thespian in wicked New York. Worst of all, it's an established fact that Mr. Pepper, before his marriage, habitually practiced celibacy. So Smathers later denied that quote, and Pepper lost that race. Does that type of, of language and nicknames and all of that, does it work? I think it certainly garners attention. Um, that's some work that uh, one of my graduate students and I have been working on. From looking at the discourse and working with a, a research team on, on incivility, um, we know that types of incivility are incredibly high and there seems to be less restraint uh, when it comes to how we communicate on social media. Um, perhaps because we're not face-to-face -face and we're not subject to seeing someone's reaction, we feel a bit more free in what we can say and perhaps that oftentimes doesn't bring about our, our best selves in, in how we communicate. Um, one way in which we know things have changed, and it's an area that I'm particularly interested in, is lying accusations. There are a number of you know, places in our you know, history where institutionally, politicians were not allowed to call each other liars. For example, Congress. You're not allowed to call another congressman a liar um, on, on the House floor or on the Senate floor, you know, even if in fact they have lied about something. That doesn't matter. The problem is, is that when you engage in some forms of name calling, like lying accusations, it halts the conversation. And so when it comes to institutions of government, we can't have conversation halted because deliberation, deliberation is at the foundation of those institutions. What we have seen, and again, I would say that social media is a large part of this, is people feel quite free, you know, outside of those institutions where they are allowed to say what they want, to increasingly use the word liar, lying, and lies, which assumes that the other side, you know, has 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 bad motivations, um, and you know, is duplicitous in coming into the process. That holds conversation, and so one way in which discourse has changed is those lying accusations are made more freely. In this year's election, did news of the day, things like the confirmation of Justice Barrett, play into decision making for voters? We don't know yet based on the data. My guess is that for the most part, by the time the, the Senate hearings had started, most people had already made their decision. The way in which it may have changed things was making people more enthusiastic for their side. So if you were a Democrat before the Senate hearings and you were troubled by the fact that the Senate hearings took place, especially in light of the fact that uh, you know, when it came to Obama at the end of his term, he wasn't able to uh, put forth his, you know, his candidate several months before the election because it was claimed by the, the Republicans to be too close. And you see the Senate going on, that makes you angry and that anger can be a source of motivation to get you out to the polls. By the same token, if you're a Republican and you were waiting for 
Donald Trump to be able to nominate a Supreme Court justice, that probably made you happier, more proud, more inspired to also ensure that you were going to get your ballot out. Arizona has a blue lean this year. We don't know how far it's going to lean because as you and I talk, we're still counting ballots, but Republicans are still the the top registered party. Can we read anything into the future of Arizona politics with all of this? I think that the tea leaves for a while have indicated that we're becoming purple. And what that essentially means is that um, things are, they're, they're competitive. And so I think it would be a mistake for Democrats to think that this, this, this turn means that things are in the bag for them, but certainly having a, a win, um, or I should say wins in different offices, for them opens up the door even more. And I think you know, anytime you become an incumbent, uh, you get more leverage uh, because you're in the news and, and that can help your side. And so it's a good sign for Democrats. They would be foolish if they, if they took it for granted. Uh, Republicans, they do have that. They continue to have that um, you know, margin when it comes to registration. And so their task in the years ahead will be to figure out the extent to which they can rely on their base and figure out ways to make sure they fully get their base you know, out to the polls next time around. The campaigning's over. The counting is underway across the country. The TV ads are gone. But the emails for fundraising are still coming in from both sides. Is that surprising? I think it's smart. I think one thing that if you run a political organization is you don't want to lose momentum in the network you've created. Campaigns are always opportunities to create that network. Networks take money to maintain. And so if you want to maintain whatever leverage you received this past campaign, um, you need to you know, keep it rolling. And so um, one, you know, one outcome of having uh, competitive elections, you know, is also possibly that, you know, we continue a perpetual campaign cycle and that we never really leave the campaign phase. Well, on that note, I will say thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you. That was Kate Kensky, a professor of political communication at the University of Arizona. And that's the buzz for this week. As of this taping, election results are still being counted. You can find all the latest election news on our website, news.azpm.org. You can find all our episodes at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Ontiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.